Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. One thing we know about the medieval period is that it was a time when trade across not just Europe, but also the wider world, began to reach something we could call globalisation. How far did these trading connections go and what did they mean for the people and societies behind them? This week we're talking about this and a very specific commodity that was highly prized in medieval society, which brand new research now shows travelled vast distances connecting east and west. And a commodity that may have had an essential role in the settlement and disappearance of an island community. I'm talking about the trade in walrus ivory and not least the impact it had on the settlers of Greenland. So today I'm delighted to have with me James Barrett, who is a Professor of Medieval and Environmental Archaeology in the Department of Archaeology and Cultural History at the NTNU University Museum in Trondheim, Norway. James, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's a pleasure. Now, I just have to ask, first of all, because when somebody goes onto your university website, it lists one of your main specialisms as ecological globalisation. And I just wanted to ask you, can you explain to us what that means and how that relates to the medieval periods? Well, really, it's just about the spatial displacement of our relationship with nature which of course in historical time has unfolded where we utilize ever more distant resources. And that process has several important historical implications. The first is on the environment itself. It's often associated with serial depletion, where using a resource which is closer gradually depletes it to the point where it becomes desirable to try to find resources further and further away. And of course, this is a process we're very, very familiar with in the 20th and 21st century, but it's something which we can also observe in much deeper time archaeologically and historically. And the other thing that this does, of course, is it creates linkages between very, very distant places. So it creates linkages between centres of consumption, often urban centres of consumption, also potentially elite centres of consumption in the countryside, and very, very distant method experts who are really the specialists in procuring these resources. Specialist hunters, you know, sometimes these are uh, indigenous communities, sometimes uh, these are rural communities from the point of view of the urban centres are far-flung places. Of course, sometimes knowledge travels with these objects, sometimes the objects travel rather divorced from the knowledge. 
that the method experts have, you know, the classic example of which is narwhal tusk, which was perceived as unicorn horn when it ultimately arrived in Europe. It really does give us an insight into the relationship between people and their environment over the long term and provides, in some cases, cautionary tales, in other cases, just a way of to understand the way that our relationship with the environment has unfolded and continues to unfold. Now, one of the sort of areas that you look at specifically is marine resources, and that can be fish. Also, what we're going to be talking about today, so the walrus ivory. So I want to just go straight into that, because that does exactly all these things that you just mentioned now. It taps into so many different types of knowledge, doesn't it, of these societies and cultures. But I wanted to just ask you, first of all, if we think about the medieval period, can you just tell us a little bit, how was walrus ivory used in the medieval period? The use depended a little bit on where and when you were, but it could be amongst precious materials that would be associated in mounds of precious metals, gold, for instance, for objects that, that carried the most tense ideological power, reliquaries, for instance, or religious items like bishops or abbots, croziers or crucifixes. And this was particularly the case in the most distant locations in the earliest period of its introduction. In places where the ivory was transshipped, you know, centres of trade, places like Trondheim, medieval Nidaros, Dublin, Schleswig, and modern-day Germany, medieval Denmark, Bergen. In these kinds of places, it was more abundant. So it could be used for very, very fine objects. Most famously, of course, Lewis Chessman, probably made in Trondheim. But it was also used for fine versions of more everyday objects, knife handles, gaming pieces. So it did depend a little bit on where and when you were. And also, as one reaches the end of the main period of walrus ivory trade, which peaked in the 12th century in the 1100s, when it was very, very popular for small-scale sculpture in Romanesque art. Elephant ivory began to appear in greater mounts in Europe in the 1200s and the 13th century, and walrus ivory clearly began to lose its value. It was still used, but less so when it was clearly worth a lot less after that point. So there were times that it was exceptionally valuable, times that it was less valuable, and places where, of course, its exact use varied depending on its abundance, its rarity. Do we know when it starts to come in? So you said if the 12th century is a highlight of the trade, when does it come in? That's an interesting question because most famously, there's an extraordinary account that dates to the very end of the 800s in which there is an Arctic Norwegian chieftain described as the sources Othera who visits the court of Alfred the Great in southern England and actually describes his journey and where he lives and his life. And this is actually recorded in a contemporary document, which is recounting an earlier source of the history of the world. And it refers to the trade of walrus tusks in Arctic Norway or possibly in northern Russia, the Kola Peninsula, for instance, and with the Sami people. And it records the fact that Othera brought some of these as gifts for King Alfred. So we know that this trade was going on in the 9th century. There are a very, very small number of walrus ivory artifacts that survive from northwestern Europe dating to that period, the 9th and 10th centuries. We've always rather imagined that that was the beginning. But if one actually carries out a systematic survey of the surviving pieces of walrus ivory, then one discovers is that the number of pieces of that date is extremely small. And it only begins to be imported to Europe on a substantial scale in the years right around 1000 AD, which possibly not coincidentally is just after the initial settlement of Greenland. And that it really peaks. There's a real boom and bust cycle 
you know, almost sort of classic rise and crash in popularity, as we see in so many commodities through time and space in the 12th century, as we've just discussed. And then it does really peter out after that, particularly in England and the continent. It has a kind of afterlife of continued use in Scandinavia and in Eastern Europe, but it's much less used after that. So can you just give us a little bit of the basics on the distribution of walrus for those of us who might not be quite so into walrus ecology? Where was it found at this point in time? It's a really good question because there's a significant likelihood of changes in distribution through time. And we might expect that partly due to human impact over exploitation and disturbance of walrus holots and partly due to the possibility of changes due to climate change. And this is something that myself and my colleagues have looked into in some detail, and also other teams that have done very important work in Iceland, for instance. And the first observation is that on the whole, walruses are denizens of the sea ice. So they have a circumpolar distribution. And the nice thing about walrus ivory, if you're studying ecological globalization, is that if you find a piece in London, for the sake of argument, that you know it probably hasn't come from the North Sea. You know, that it's come a long way and probably from the Arctic. The question is, how far south did walruses come in different parts of the distribution? And it's a very valid question because there was actually a population of walruses that came very far south, as far south as Nova Scotia, for instance, in the east coast of North America, that was hunted out in colonial times. And so we might therefore ask, is it conceivable that walruses also came much farther south in Europe in historical times before they were hunted, albeit at an earlier date? But the research seems to show that that on the whole isn't the case, that this Maritimes walrus that was so much farther south in North America is a very distinct genetically distinct and in other ways distinct population, which wasn't associated with the ice in the way that Atlantic walruses are everywhere else. So that's the first thing. We can rule out the likelihood that walruses were very far south in Europe in earlier centuries. And then the second thing is, so, you know, okay, accepting that, where were they? And what we can observe based on the archaeological and to a lesser degree, the historical record is that they were certainly in Iceland at the time of the initial Norse settlement. But in Iceland, they were very, very quickly hunted out after Landnam, within a couple of centuries, probably. And secondly, that in northern Norway, where they're really very, very rare today, in the past, there was a walrus population that lived on a little island in the middle of the Barents Sea, called Bear Island or Bjarnoia. And when that population existed, it was hunted out in the middle of the 1800s. But when it existed, that of course walruses move around and that they were far more common in what we now call Finnmark in the northernmost Norway. So it would have been possible in the Middle Ages to hunt them in northern Norway. But even then, the number of bones, for instance, that we find even in prehistoric sites where there are lots of seals being harvested, walrus remains are very, very, very rare. You just mentioned early on this point around the turn of the millennium, so around 1000, and also Greenland. So let's go on to that because that becomes the key part of the story, really, doesn't it? So Greenland is settled around about this time, right at the end of the 900s, really. How much do you think walrus and the hunt for walrus was a part of that settlement? It was extremely important for the Norse colony of Greenland to maintain contact with Iceland and with Europe. And particularly after the period when the North Greenlanders had their own ships, they needed an export product in order to maintain that. And the main export product we know from historic sources, as well as being able to infer it archaeologically, were those derived from the walrus. And there are really two main products. We talk about the walrus ivory because that's what survives. But we know from contemporary historical sources that walrus hide ropes were also very, very highly valued. They were the strongest ropes that existed in the time period used for the very heaviest of lifting tasks. 
So they were used for some aspects of ship rigging, and they were used for things like the securing of church bells. And there's even a source from the 13th century referring to them being on the market in Köln in Germany, in addition to these being referred to in many Scandinavian sources in the Middle Ages. So uh, walrus products were very highly valued. They were really essential for the economic survival in terms of long-range trade with Europe of North Greenland. But if one wants to look at things at a finer scale with greater detail, then it's really valuable to always remember that there were two Norse colonies in Greenland, very closely related, of course. There was the so-called eastern colony, which was in the southeast Tipperary, and the so-called western settlement, present-day Nuuk. And they had quite different economies. And the western settlement, which was the first to disappear, probably in the middle of the 1300s, was situated at the time of its creation, what was the southern limit of the distribution of walruses in western Greenland. Quite quickly, it seems as in Iceland, the walruses in that area were probably depleted, and the main area of walrus hunting in North Greenland was much farther north, around Disco Bay. The entire existence, one might argue, of the western settlement was about the walrus hunt, whereas the eastern settlement had a much more diversified economy to a much greater degree, dependent on pastoral agriculture, for instance, and lasted longer. So it, to give a simple answer, you know, how important were walruses to the north settlements of Greenland? But they're very important. If one were to give a more detailed answer, they were probably extremely important, possibly even the reason for its existence when one's talking about the western settlement, but less crucial in terms of the eastern settlement. And that importance potentially becomes very relevant to the difference in the timing of the abandonment of those settlements. So we studied how these products are being used over time and where they come from, but also the distribution internationally. So what methods do you actually use to study what happens to this walrus trade over the years? You know, archaeology has quite a diverse toolkit. And some of the traditional methods remain very powerful. And of course, there are also new methods which significantly increase our ability to answer old questions in new ways. But to start with some of the traditional methods, what we were able to discover is that the walrus ivory was actually traded as tusks in pairs still attached to the front of the walrus skull. And this created a very convenient package. The end of the tusks is inside the skull is actually hollow and therefore potentially subject to breakage. And so shipping them left in the front of the skull you know, was a good practical solution. And when one looks long and hard enough in places where there are walrus ivory workshops in northwestern Europe, one will often find pieces of these walrus skulls that have been broken up during the extraction of the tusks. Because it's just the front of the skull, they've been removed, of course. And in fact, in many cases, they've been modified in other ways, almost decorated with a kind of folk art. And one can apply traditional artifact analysis methodologies to these objects in order to see the operational sequence, the series of events that occurred in the specific way that they were modified. Analysis allows us to identify a, a particular school, if you like, of working this material. We sometimes call it a community of practice, just a group of people who are doing things in similar ways where, you know, it's not like they've invented this independently. They're probably in communication with each other. And traditionally, when one has an artifact type in archaeology, we use that to infer a potential location of manufacture. You know, this type came from somewhere. Of course, the issue is that it's possible to copy what people do. So we know, for instance, that these methods of modification were used in Greenland. So we might infer that these skulls were coming from Greenland just from this archaeological analysis, this artifactual analysis in its own right. But of course, it could be copied elsewhere. 
So then if one would like to provenance this material, one can apply stable isotope methods. It's an analysis of isotopes in the protein from the material, which ultimately relate to the diet and environment in which the animal originally lived, you know, that specific animal. And we can also apply ancient DNA methods, which refers to the ultimate ancestry of the animal. And in that case, it's possible to identify two broad groups of Atlantic walruses, excluding the maritime walrus we talked about before. And one of those groups is uniquely distributed in Western Greenland and the Eastern Canadian Arctic. The farther north you go in Western Greenland, the more prevalent this particular genetic group is, this haplotype is. The other group is widely distributed. It occurs in Arctic Europe and all the way across Eastern Greenland, but in fact also occurs in Western Greenland and in the Eastern Canadian Arctic. The short version of that is that there's one haplotype, the Western haplotype, that if you have it, you know the specimen, if it's medieval, has probably come through the North Colony of Greenland. And the other haplotype, you just don't know. But if you combine the studies of the stable isotopes that indicates the environment in which the walrus lived with the ancient DNA data, then one can begin to tease apart potentially where that widely distributed group comes as well. And if you combine that with the artifactual study of the way in which the skulls have been modified, then the three together are in fact really quite powerful and can give quite a convincing explanation as to the source of the material. And now you have noticed that I'm talking specifically about the walrus skulls here. And the reason for that is partly uh, pragmatic and ethical, and it's the fact that these walrus skulls are large, they're broken up, they're only slightly modified by human craft, and so it's quite reasonable to sample these for what are ultimately, even although the samples are small, destructive analyses, stable isotopes in ancient DNA, for instance, where we might not wish to do that you know, on very small, very fine ivory artifacts. In many ways, it was the discovery of these walrus skulls that opened up the possibility for this kind of research. Did you know that some of literature's greatest characters were real people? It's so fascinating, isn't it, that some of the Three Musketeers are also based on real soldiers. That Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't all that he's been cracked up to be. Chemist, poet, scholar, historian, courtier. He could have been great in all these different things. And that if your name is Dudley, you better watch your back. For the Tudors, each one of them took something from the Dudleys, either by working with a member of the Dudley family, or of course by having one executed. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm learning all this and much more, bringing you not just the Tudors, twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey folks, since you're a fan of history, you clearly want to understand how we've ended up with the world that we have. Well, I'd like to tell you about my show. It's called Dan Snow's History Hit. And on that show, you get a daily dose of history and the stories that really explain just about everything that's ever happened. If you want to know the origin stories of the cities we inhabit, what's in our kitchen cupboards, why we've always been drawn to dictators, the deep history that explains what's going on, for example, in the Middle East, well, we've got you covered. And if you'd rather be regaled with dramatic tales of powerful empires, we do that too. Get a little bit smarter every day with Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go on to one of your very recent studies that only came out a few months ago because you got involved in looking at some ivory artifacts that had turned up in Kyiv in Ukraine and asked to have a look at the origins of this. And obviously this is very far east in those trading networks that we've talked about just now. So tell me what were those objects and what did you find out from that study? Yes, this was quite a surprise. In previous work, I made an effort to tabulate how many of these walrus skulls we know of in Europe and came up with a total of about 67. These are medieval examples. And then through a colleague uh, working in the archaeology of Kiev, Natalia Kamenko, came to my attention that there were actually nine walrus skulls discovered in archaeological excavation in Kiev, right in a trading settlement of the 1100s, really right on the river. And this is extraordinary. I mean, one doesn't expect to find walruses on the Dnieper River. <laughs> They're a little bit far from home and certainly not from the 1100s. So this was amazing. So I went out to look at them. Natalia and I looked at them together and we conducted the analyses on these skulls of the kind that I've just described as we had previously done in the Northwestern European examples. And the reason why these particular skulls are so very important is because of their date and their location. And to provide the context, first, Kiev was a very, very major urban center of the day, a central turntable of trade between Europe and northwestern Europe, Scandinavia and Byzantium, and also into Asia. And the second is that the single largest known collection of walrus ivory from the Middle Ages is from another Eastern European city, Novgorod, which is on the river trade routes between Scandinavia and, in fact, also the Arctic Russian north and Kiev. So if you know where the material from Kiev came from, then you can infer where the material from Novgorod probably came from. And the last is given its position as a turntable trade between Scandinavian Europe and Byzantium and the East, then you can also make some potential inferences. Obviously, here one is in more speculative territory about the source of walrus ivory that it's known was also traveling to Byzantium and into Asia. So it's quite important to know where these are from. And it has always been assumed, completely understandably, that the Eastern European walrus finds, like the ivory from Novgorod, was probably from Arctic Russia. This is firstly because they're a much more approximate source, and secondly, because there are Arabic accounts which specifically refer to the Asian sourcing of walrus ivory from 
what are now Ukraine and Russia. And of course, the inference of that is that it was harvested in what's now Russia, in addition to having passed through. So this is past sensible assumptions. And so when we studied these, or when we first went to study these, our expectation was that these would prove to be from the Barents Sea, for instance, the Kara Sea. But immediately on looking at them, it was clear that they were modified in the same way as the other Northwestern European examples, which we had demonstrated based on isotopes and DNA were almost certainly from Greenland. So there's an immediate hint that these look Greenlandic. So then we carried out the ancient DNA and stable isotope analysis. And at this point, we were now into COVID. So we had to wait a little while for the labs to reopen. But then we got the results back and they were. There were nine skulls. They're from nine individual walruses. And it was possible to conduct DNA and isotope analysis on seven of those. Five of the seven are of the Western DNA group that really has to have come from Western Greenland or the Eastern Canadian Arctic. The other two are of the clade where you just can't tell. So they could be from Europe, but they could equally have been West Greenland as well. Isotopically, they're all consistent with being from Greenland, but we can't completely exclude based on the isotopes, Iceland, for example. And when you combine this with the way that they're modified, then one can be confident that at least a majority are Greenlandic. So that really changes the way that we understand the nature of the trade quite fundamentally and means that potentially the entirety of Eurasian demand for walrus ivory in the 1100s, you know, this peak in its exploitation I referred to, is actually focused on the Norse colony of Greenland. And that was a big surprise. And it also has potentially non-trivial, you know, wider implications. Absolutely, because that is quite staggering if you just look at the map and look at the sort of extensive distances, but the routes and the networks that are functioning so well at that point to be able to sustain all of that. That's quite a staggering result, isn't it? It was a big surprise. I wanted to also go a little bit back to what you were talking about a bit earlier. So this is showing that you've got this huge demand. You've got and a supply, I suppose, at this point in time at the peak that goes so far. But you've been looking at these changes over time because as we now know very well in our current world, these resources are not infinite. Um, things happen over time if you do overexploit them. So in terms of looking at that development then and that sort of continuing, what did you find over time as it got sort of closer to to the end of the period where this was used. Here was another surprise. And this is speaking not just about Kia, but more holistically about the study of all of the finds of these uh, walrus skulls in Eastern and Northwestern Europe. And the background a little bit has to keep in mind that there was this boom and bust that we can see based on the dating of walrus ivory artifacts in Europe, where there was a real crash when moved into the 1200s and 1300s. And of course, we know that Norse Greenland was abandoned, the Western settlement in the 1300s and the Eastern settlement very shortly thereafter. And traditionally, walrus ivory or the walrus hunt has been considered to be part of this bigger story. And it's been suggested that the introduction of elephant ivory into Western Europe on a large scale in the 1200s meant that walrus ivory was no longer valued. Therefore, the trade declined. And with the decline of the trade, perhaps the economic viability of the Norse colonies of Greenland declined. And this was a quite sensible argument, and I was very persuaded by it at the time. But when we started to study the chronologies of these walrus skulls and the characteristics of these skulls, several unanticipated results came out. And the first was that they continued into the 1300s. The second is that they got smaller through time, with the smallest examples being in the 1300s. And the last is that through time, an increasing proportion of them were of this Western 
ancient DNA group, which is more common the farther north one goes in northwestern Greenland. So one looks at that evidence together, what it looks like, in a very, very straightforward way, is an example of serial depletion, where one starts off, obviously, if you're after tusks, hunting the largest walruses closer to hand. And as one moves forward in time, one has to hunt smaller and smaller animals in order to keep up with demand, and one has to hunt them farther and farther away, farther north along the west coast of Greenland. And if one combines this with some really quite remarkable archaeological evidence that's been known about for a long time, but has never really been satisfactorily explained, starting in the 1200s, there are actually artifacts from the Norse colonies of Greenland in the very, very far north of northwestern Greenland, and also in Ellesmere Island, across the Sound in the eastern Canadian Arctic. These are really from the start in the 1200s, uh, maybe moving into the 1300s. And people are going exceptionally far north. And really, when one's talking Ellesmere Island, I mean, this is as far north as humans inhabited the planet at the date, essentially. And these are found in indigenous Inuit, uh, Thule Inuit sites. It's, of course, quite sensibly been suggested that perhaps this is trade between the Norse and the Inuit. And one of those most likely products of that trade, of course, is walrus ivory. So it would seem, if we put all of this evidence together, the Norse colonists in Greenland really were beginning to have to go to exceptional lengths in order to procure, not exceptional because of trade with the indigenous community, it's perfectly sensible, but in terms of the distances involved from the eastern and western settlement all the way to Smithsound. And this was arguably not a sustainable endeavour. And in fact, in one of the sites in Ellesmere Island, there are ship rivets and ship planks. So it's quite clear that one didn't always come back from these expeditions. So here we have a case of serial depletion at exactly the time that, in theory, the walrus ivory trade should have been stopping because elephant ivory was replacing it in Europe. And we had to put those things together. And of course, quite quickly, it does make sense because what the historical sources from Europe are telling us is that walrus ivory was less valued from the late 1200s, for example. We have particular correspondence between the Pope and the Archbishop in Trondheim, for instance, that says as much. So if walrus ivory is worth less, but you're in North Greenland and you still need to maintain your connection with Europe, then rather than hunting fewer walruses, of course, it means you have to hunt more because each tusk is worth less in order to maintain your balance of trade. So it would seem that the walrus hunt actually increased rather than decreased with the introduction of elephant ivory into Europe and that one has this case of serial depletion where the walruses of Greenland are under very, very serious pressure. And finding the Kiev skulls helps to understand how that could be so, because the geographical scale of demand that is focused on that Western Greenlandic population is Eurasian. You know, Scandinavia isn't just Northwestern Europe. It, it is really certainly the whole of Western and Eastern Europe. And because of the trade linkages of Kiev, then really the whole of Eurasia. And that helps us understand this result of this process of ecological globalization at such an early date. So, I mean, it's so exciting to see the impact that this trade had on all of Europe. So what about the walrus now? Did it get completely endangered or is there still a sort of sustainable use of walrus in Greenland especially? Absolutely. And one of the nice things about studying the history of walrus exploitation about this particular case study is that in the long term, in many ways, it's a success story because walruses in various parts of their range, in Svalbard, for instance, the Barents Sea and also in Greenland, have in modern times been very successfully managed and have viable and sustainable populations. In the long term, of course, one has to ask what the implications 
of changes in sea ice distribution will be for the walrus. But at present, we're very fortunate that this extraordinary Arctic animal is still with us. That's fantastic. It's quite rare, isn't it, for it to be a, almost a success story at the end. Wonderful. And just for our listeners out there, I know that you can look up James's research papers. I think they will open access these recent papers, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. So if you just search for James Barrett and, and Walrus Ivory Trade, that's probably the easiest way of finding the details if you want all the nuts and bolts of it. But James, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you very much, Kat. So this brings us to the end of today's episode of Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast. Please do so. Please tell all your friends and family to listen to us as well. And you can subscribe to our Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just look in the episode notes for how to do that. And we will be back again with another episode on Saturday and the following next Tuesday. Thank you all so much for listening. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.